0: Everyone, welcome back to the Criminology Academy, where we are criminally academic. My name is Jen Tosleb,
1: and I'm Jose Sanchez,
0: and we are your hosts for this episode.
1: In this episode, we are speaking with Professor Erin Carnes about news and entertainment media coverage of terrorism and torture.
0: Erin M. Carnes is currently an assistant professor in the Department of Criminology and Criminal Justice at the University of Alabama. Starting in August 2021, she will join the School of Criminology and Criminal Justice and the National Counterterrorism Innovation, Technology, and Education Center of Excellence at the University of Nebraska Omaha. Her primary research seeks to understand the relationship among terrorism, media, law enforcement, and the public. Her publications include articles on why groups lie about terrorism, media coverage of terrorism and counterterrorism, public perceptions of terrorism and counterterrorism practices, and relationships between communities and law enforcement. Thank you
2: so much for joining us, Erin. Thank you so much for having me here today. I'm really excited to speak with you both.
1: Okay, so before we get into it, just a brief overview of what we're going to be talking about today. We are going to ask you a few sort of broad questions about terrorism and terrorism research. Then we're going to get into a paper that you co-authored on the media and terrorism. And then finally, we are going to talk about some of your work with Counterterrorism and the use of torture and public perceptions on the use of torture. And so with that being said, take it away, Jen.
0: Thanks, Jose. So Erin, our first question for you is this broad question of how is terrorism defined?
2: And that is the million-dollar question. <laughs> so, you know, I I often and I'm not the only one who probably makes this joke that if you asked, you know, a dozen terrorism experts how to define terrorism, you'd get at least two dozen answers. <laughs> And part of the problem with the definition is that there is not one single definition that is used academically we've debated and we've debated this you know this very very question for decades there's no one definition that is used even within the United States you know from a legal standpoint there is no charge for terrorism itself so We think about how to define this, you know, while there is this debate and uncertainty, there are some core elements that are generally agreed upon. It's generally agreed upon that terrorism needs to be the threat or use of violence, that it needs to aim to cause fear or, or coerce a broader audience than just those who are directly impacted, that the motivation for it needs to be politically, economically, socially or religiously focused. Some of the things that we might quibble a little bit more on is whether the targets have to be civilians versus non-combatants, which would mean perhaps you know, people who are in uniform but not actively engaged in official you know, in official duties. So, for example, attack on the Marine barracks in Beirut back in I think 1982. We might also quibble about whether the perpetrators need to be sub-state actors or not. I will say in my research, because of this, what I and many other scholars do is that we tie our operating definition to the global terrorism database's data because that is an external entity that has systematically collected and coded incidents or data about incident-level incident level data on terrorism for decades. And that is a I think a sound way of sort of tying our understanding of what terrorism is from a research perspective to systematic publicly available data. Okay.
0: Yeah, I feel like there's so many things that people think <laughs> are just easy to define that end up just not being. But that's not good there that there are like these core elements that then at least researchers can draw off of.
1: It's always interesting to me, because you know I do I do gang research and you know we have debates over definitions all the time as well and you know when I talk to like my parents or family members like what do you mean they're like you don't know what the definition for this thing is it's like such an important thing Mm -hmm. I'm like yeah I don't know (laughs) if I could answer that question I would but yeah scholars define things a little differently at least with Mm -hmm. gang legislation states define things differently yeah so it's just interesting that yeah like we do have these things that seem to be Mm -hmm. pretty important but we don't have like concrete answers for things like what is it
2: and that's i mean such sort of the crux of the problem with much of what we study is that you know the members of the public are like, oh, I know what this is. I can define what terrorism is or isn't. And you're like, well, no, that's not really how this works. Mm-hmm. And it can lead really, and it's, it's not, you know, of course we study this and think about this in far more detail than the average person, but it can lead to a lot of misunderstandings about you know, terrorism, crime and violence more generally and responses mm-hmm. to it.
1: Yeah, I, we all love, I know it when I see it. Mm-hmm. I right. It <laughs> So speaking of this, so at least I think for our generation, terrorism really came to the forefront or really became, came to like the public consciousness for us after 9-11. And so could you maybe talk to us a little bit about terrorism before 9-11 and if there was sort of like an increase in terror attacks post 9-11?
2: It's a great question. So, we, and again, I'm going to, you know, refer back to the global terrorism database because they have been collecting these data since 1970. So, we can look at some of these time trends. When we look at the number of terror attacks, you know, in the United States or globally, 9 11 didn't have this, you know, marked increase in or really any increase that we can see in the frequency of terrorism. And that is, you know, I think as you alluded to, is sort of runs counter to the assumption because obviously 9-11 was such a sort of formative event in public consciousness over the last 20 years where we talk about and think about terrorism so much, presumably more than we did before that. So it's a little bit sort of, it's like I think one of those really interesting examples of how, again, public awareness and actual data are at odds with one another.
0: Yeah, I definitely would have thought that they increased just because that's what you hear about more. I mean, even recently, you know, you know, I can think of multiple things that have been discussed, at least by the media, as terror attacks. All right. So then what are the main causes of terrorism?
2: (laughs) I'm going to paint with a very, very broad brush okay. here because it is, you know, and this is something that we do know a lot more than we did. And, you know, it did, you know, pre 9-11. And there certainly were scholars who were studying terrorism before 9-11. You know, there's been market increase in that sense, of course. When we think about what caused terrorism. There are, you know, strategic rational reasons why groups or individuals use terrorism to try to further some goals. So this, you know, partially has this, you know, rational, reason for terrorism as a, you know, a means to an end, really. There are some psychological processes that are connected potentially with increased likelihood of perpetrating terrorism. A lot of it comes, though, from you know, societal, social you know, context as well. So what else is going on in broader society? What an individual's, you know, their own so- existing social networks look like in pushing people or pulling people from groups that are engaging in violence, including terrorism? So it's complicated?
0: Yes. <laughs> I figured that would be the answer, but you know, it's one of those yeah. things that you have to ask.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so I guess now's a good time to sort of start laying a little bit of the foundation as we start moving towards your paper that we'll be discussing. And can you describe the term media framing? Like what is it and why does it have such a powerful impact?
2: yeah absolutely, and this is you drawing from communications literature, and actually sort of is part and parcel with not just how media frame events but how they agenda set as well sort of to jen 's point that you assume that there's more terrorism because you hear about it more, and that's the you know sort of the first component of media news media in particular in this context's influence on public awareness is that First, media agenda set and what they cover and what they don't. If media are covering a particular event or an issue more, people are more aware of it. It signals to the broader public this is an important thing that we should be paying attention to. And then, once media decide to cover an event or an issue, how they cover that can vary quite dramatically and have huge impacts on public awareness. And we think about this, I mean, you, you can think of all of the anecdotal examples flipping on an MSNBC clip and a Fox News clip discussing the same event, and they are framed in two dramatically different ways. In this context, thinking about terrorism, it's, you know, framing an event, you know, there's plenty of violent events that get news coverage. We can think of, you know, a number within the last few weeks, unfortunately. How media describe the perpetrator, how they describe the event itself can also influence how people perceive these events and can lead to people making assumptions and connections that aren't actually supported by data or by how we actually are thinking about terrorism in this instance or in this example.
0: So then using that and getting more Mm -hmm. into these media depictions of terrorism Mm -hmm. and its perpetrators, in what ways do media like represent or even misrepresent terrorism as it's actually unfolding Mm -hmm. as the event is actually happening?
2: Absolutely. So the biggest thing that, you know, we tend to notice is that their news media's job is to, you know, yes, inform people, but also keep people watching or listening or reading or whatever, you know, whatever format the media is being, you know, depicted in, and ultimately people want sort of answers. And in the immediate aftermath, particularly of larger scale events, the question really, you know, the quick questions are, you know, who did it, why did they do it, is this terrorism, who's responsible? And those are things that in reality, take time to understand. You have to do investigations. This can take days, weeks, months to have actual evidence-based answers. But media need to cover it right at that moment. So there tends to be, I mean, the the number of times that I heard, you know, listening to, I think it was CNN in grad school when there is was, a, you know, an event that happens, like, well, we shouldn't speculate. But if, and it was like, you just said you shouldn't speculate, but then they don't right point into speculating because it's, it, it's just, you know, it's different pushes and pulls. So I want to be really careful. Like, this is not about, like, fake news, quote-unquote, or anything of that nature. That's not what I'm talking about here. What I'm talking about is how media depict things that are actually happening and how slight shifts in framing can potentially influence how public, the public perceives of terrorism, among other issues.
0: So this is kind of a question that Jose and I are really interested in because we're close to the event that just happened. So we're talking about the Boulder, Colorado shooting that happened what, a few weeks ago? And it's funny because you just said, you know, you shouldn't speculate, but we're kind of going to ask you (laughs) somewhat to. And it's okay if you don't want to, but we're kind of, so when we were thinking about this, you know, when the Boulder shooting was actually occurring, there was a lot of discussion around mental illness and white privilege, since it was assumed that the perpetrator of the event was white. All of a sudden, it came out that he had a Muslim-sounding name and was Muslim, and the conversation, you know, briefly switched to this discussion of terrorism. But still, like, now, mental illness really seems to remain, like, the dominant storyline amongst the media. Mm -hmm. And so we're kind of curious if you can talk about or speculate why you think the terrorism narrative didn't, like, predominate or isn't
2: currently predominating. So... I would like as an optimistic take which I'm usually much more of a realist. An optimistic take <laughs> is that as there's been more discussion of the importance of how media frame violent events, they are more hesitant to just initially call something terrorism. That's what I hope. I think in reality and when we think about this discussion and the you know the sort of had been for a long time, the conventional wisdom that if the perpetrator is Muslim, we call it terrorism. Mm-hmm. If the perpetrator is white, we call it a function of mental illness. And there's a couple of issues with this, right? Is that first, like you can't like this perpetrator seems to be both, you know, to the extent that race and ethnicity aren't, they're social constructs still, right, obviously seems to be both white, or at least would appear to be white. If you are mm-hmm. just looking at a picture, perhaps, and also Muslim. like those two things can coexist. And that, I mean, thankfully, because there aren't that actual many terrorist attacks in the US in any you know, given time period, there really aren't very many perpetrators who actually have been both white and Muslim to be able to sort of see how the interplay of those two identities can influence news coverage. what we you know, do see if we separate this out though, is that, yeah, well, you know, that there, there is this implicit association between Islam and terrorism in media coverage and in public perceptions. And this, I mean, in part, almost certainly stems from, from 9-11 and that being such a salient attack. There's also elements of, sort of social identity theory and in, in groups and out groups and the majority of the U S public are white and non-Muslim. So it's, it's easier to view that threats come from a group that is not like someone than
1: One's own in-group yeah I mean it's a I think it's an interesting discussion to have, especially this morning I was actually reading an article and where they were talking were well technically if you're going by like like u s definitions the census like he is white, right, but he's also Muslim, so how do we and then they were trying to get at that like, you know, people were like, well, white white men can be terrorists too. So yes. how do we reconcile <laughs> like this? Like that. I guess legally he's white, but he's also Muslim. And
2: neither of these things should matter in how we define the attacks. You know, define the event itself and the motivations behind it for whether it is and that is how the that is how events get included in the global terrorism database. It doesn't matter the perpetrators, race, ethnicity, religion. It's what is the the motivation for the event. In terms of how do we rectify this with public awareness and consciousness, it's a much bigger question that I have spent years trying to figure out and will probably spend the rest of my career trying to figure out. And it becomes much, much more challenging because there is just, it's it's people don't, you know, these associations, these inaccurate associations between Islam and terrorism, you know, are pervasive and there's, We see this both from the media coverage side of things, like the paper that we'll be talking about in a little bit, as well as other research that has looked at media coverage and framing of terrorism. And we're not the only ones who have done this, certainly. And from the public perception side of things, you know, from survey research looking at associations, from experimental research that varies perpetrator identity and asks people how they perceive of the event. It's pervasive and, you know, how do we correct that? This is, again, is a big question that... I have a lot more ideas for research projects on than I have answers for.
0: Yeah. We believe in you. Yes. <laughs> we can get to the heart <laughs> of it. Yeah,
1: Because,
0: yeah, it is a really big question, but it's an important
1: one. Okay, so I guess not as good a time as any to move into your paper. So the paper was authored by our guest, Erin Carnes, and her co-authors, Alison Betis. Bedes, And Anthony Lemieux. Perfect. I probably should have asked this before we started. It's all right. And the is titled, How Perpetrator Identity Sometimes Influences Media Framing Attacks as Terrorism or Mental Illness. The paper was published in 2020 in Communications Research. In this paper, Professor Carnes and her colleagues systematically examine when terrorism is referenced and when mental illness is referenced in media coverage of terror attacks and whether there is variation based on perpetrator identity. This is done by examining the text of print news coverage of all terrorist attacks listed in the Global Terrorism Database, which occurred in the United States between 2006 and 2015. Specifically, the main research question is, in media coverage of terror attacks, when is terrorism referenced and when is mental illness referenced? Is that a fair representation of your paper? It sure is. Perfect. So our first question, and this is one that we always like to start with, is sort of what was the impetus behind writing this paper?
2: This is a great question. So the initial idea for this paper came about January, I want to say, January or so of 2017. So it was right after former President Trump was inaugurated. And he made some boneheaded comment about how, you know, there are more terrorist attacks than there by Muslims, and that's what's not getting covered. And this is one of the, you know, that any terrorism researchers like, yeah, that's not the problem. You know, but there was this implicit sort of assumption that, you know, that what we, you know, what we're examining in this paper, that there's this, we all sort of assumed that media were more likely to cover and frame attacks as terrorism when the perpetrators were Muslim when well, we were, you know, just started really as like a lunchroom conversation, we realized that while this is had been viewed as sort of conventional wisdom, both amongst terrorism researchers and amongst the broader public, or at least segments of the broader public, there hadn't been any systematic studies actually evaluating this. There's certainly some, you know, formative studies in the you know, years right after 9-11 looked at subsets of cases. So you know looking at, say, 11 attacks and seeing how those individual attacks were framed. But the thing that still didn't allow us to answer is how is this systematically across all attacks in a particular country during a particular time period? And might it be something about the subset of cases that have been used in prior research that were influencing the findings? So we set out to look at, as I said, the global terrorism database over this 10 year period. And partially we stopped in 2015, because that's the extent of the global terrorism database that was available at the time we did this project, started this project. And then we went back 10 years, which was a nice, even number. Also, 20- 2006 was the point at which smartphones came out, people were using the internet far, far more for lots of things, including getting news, we assumed that that might be a time period where you would see shifts in the amount of news coverage because there aren't page limits on the internet and like there are on actual hard copy newspapers. So we started with just you know looking for the actual print news coverage. In doing that, it became really apparent really quickly that there were also these massive differences in how much various attacks were being framed. And that was the foundation of a... Related piece that we published in Justice Quarterly in 2018 or 2019, I forget. And then this was looking more at this framing questions. So it was really sort of a two part project. So then,
0: related to that initial question, why is it important to understand how perpetrator identity influences media references to terrorism or to mental illness?
2: So the biggest influence or importance here is that this can shape how the general public thinks about threats. And we see, you know, we see this sort of play out in real time where since 9-11, there has been this over-focus on terrorism, you know, this association between Islam and terrorism to the point that the broader public, law enforcement agencies, etc., have been less willing to see Threats from other groups, you know, particularly far-right extremist groups in the United States, which is, you know, no question, in the last few years have, you know, played a huge role. But that's not something that is new in the data. Really, we can go back, look at, you know, data over, you know, from 2006 onward, far-right extremists were perpetrating the majority of the terrorist attacks in the United States. It's just that that's not what media was covering. That's not what people were aware of. And associating with terrorism, which is, you know, can really blind us, you know, both as society and as people who are looking to counter this sort of violence to what, you know, the real sort of threat landscape and the variety of different potential threats looks like.
0: And even then how to solve this issue of being very optimistic.
1: (laughs) So you have a nifty setup for this paper and the main section of the framing of your study is split up into four distinct parts. Each one has its own theoretical framing and prior research to set up hypotheses. And so the way we want to do it is we want to talk to you about each part individually. And so we'll start with part one, which is race and religion. And so based on prior research, Western media disproportionately describes violence perpetrated by Muslims as terrorism, going so far as to associate terrorism as a quote unquote Muslim problem. When it comes to white perpetrators, people are less likely to view them as terrorists and are instead more willing to find alternate explanations for their behavior, such as mental illness. So based on this, can you describe your hypothesis on race and religion?
2: Sure, um, so the hypotheses on race and religion, I think is importantly making two distinctions. One of which we've already talked about is that a perpetrator can be white or not white, Muslim or not Muslim. They can be white and Muslim, white but not Muslim, Muslim but not white, or neither of these. So in the public discourse about this, it tends to dichotomize it as white or Muslim. It's like, no, no, there's more options than that. So really separating out the hypotheses in that way is really important. There's also in the public discourse on this, this assumption that attacks are framed either as terrorism or as the result of mental illness without acknowledging that those two things can both be frames in the same article covering the same attack, or there's coverage of terrorist attacks that don't reference either of those two. So really separating this out and trying to drill down more systematically and in a more methodologically sound way on what the mechanisms are here as it relates, you know, sort of attesting the conventional wisdom, I guess, is a way to say it.
1: And can you, so give us what your findings were? Sure. Um,
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we found that coverage of attacks where the perpetrator was Muslim, those articles were dramatically more likely to frame an attack as terrorism as compared to attacks where the perpetrator was not Muslim. Contrary to expectation, whether or not the perpetrator is white has no bearing on the likelihood that articles covering the attack Will be you know will frame that attack as a result of mental illness or not.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. It's like the public discourse is right in one way, but not in the other. Wrong in the other.
2: Yes. Absolutely. And I should also note that you know understanding sort of the public interest of this research, we ran, I estimated these models hundreds of different ways, hundreds of different ways of potentially operationalizing different variables, of including other potential control variables, really like, I kind of joke, like we almost tried to like reverse PHAC this to be like, is there any way that we can find different results? And we don't. <laughs> huh. That's crazy. You know, except for what is described in the paper, where there's a little bit about how we conceptualize whether the perpetrator actually has a mental health issue.
0: Yeah, and you, to kind of go to your, like, methods from looking at this mm-hmm. print media, I mean, there were multiple people on the paper who examined each article, right, or two? Yes, yes. And then drawing out specific keywords. Yes. So you had, you know, you had a method for how you were looking at these articles and putting them into your data.
2: Yes, incredibly systematic. Every, we officially say that everything was fully double-coded and any disagreements were agreed upon. In practice, everything was looked at more like four, five, six times. Yeah. Really with the eye that, you know, because of the importance of this and because of the public interest towards it, we are much, much more concerned about getting it right than we were about having, you know, a finding that would get published and all of that. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Okay, so the second part of your paper was kind of looking at like larger organizations versus a lone individual as a perpetrator. And so, kind of to summarize this section, the literature and prior research, relative to a lone individual, research had found that Americans are more likely to label an attack as terrorism if the perpetrators are part of a larger organization. And so... Going off of that, can you elaborate a little on that and what your hypotheses were regarding whether an attack was associated with a known
2: terrorist group? Sure. I mean, our expectation, particularly when, you know, when there's violence and there's sometimes this ambiguity about whether it's terrorism or not, if we know that the perpetrators are a member of or associated with a known group, and whether that be you know, Al Qaeda or ISIS, or whether that be a group like Sovereign Citizens or the Earth Liberation Front that association with a known group that perpetrates terrorism should and does increase the likelihood that media frame that attack as being terrorism and decreases the likelihood that media are referencing mental health issues. And the argument there is mostly thinking that if the perpetrators are part of a larger group, it's easier to sort of categorize this as as terrorism. There doesn't need to be the speculation about causes where mental health issues might get thrown into the mix. There's also perhaps the assumptions that somebody who has mental health issues is not going to be able to be part of, you know, a group plot. Now, that's not necessarily the case. And, you know, the, the, the actual research looking at relationships between mental health or mental illness and perpetration of terrorism, you know, this is not a causal pathway right there. But the research there is much, much more complex.
0: And then going off of those hypotheses, what what did you end up finding?
2: So yeah, we found that you know if the perpetrators are part of a known group, that media are dramatically more likely to frame the attack as being terrorism. And if perpetrators are part of a known group, they're also less likely to frame that attack as being a result of mental illness, which is what we expected.
1: Okay, and so part three deals with mental illness, and so The research finds that the public is less likely to consider perpetrators to be terrorists when they have a documented mental health issue. However, even if there is evidence of a valid diagnosis, the media often uses family history or non-clinical terms such as quote, unquote, crazy or maniac to refer Mm -hmm. to the perpetrator. Can you give us your hypotheses for the mental illness Sure. So we
2: were, you know, really looking at this, and I will, I want to really be very, very careful in caveating that, you know, that this is, we are not in any way trying to imply that there is a relationship between mental illness and perpetration of terrorism. really what we're expecting here is that, you know, the media coverage of of an attack will be less likely to reference terrorism when the perpetrator has a mental illness and will be more likely to reference mental illness when the perpetrator has a mental illness, which still can lead to stigmatization of mental health issues, but that at least is a reflection of some actual part of the perpetrator, potentially. So we were expecting, in short, basically, if the perpetrator has a documented mental health issue, media will be less likely to reference terrorism, more likely to reference mental
1: health issues. And was there support for this hypothesis?
2: So we thought about how we measured how we measure mental, you know, known mental health issues, a couple of different ways. And that's just, again, thinking about, you know, th- this is, we don't have perfect data to here, right? So we so thought this, you know, in a really sort of strict coding where there is a confirmed diagnosis, the person has a confirmed diagnosed mental health issue that we, that was discussed in media, and then more loosely where the perpetrator has so been speculated, perhaps with you know, interviews with family or friends that that the perpetrator might have some some, some sort of mental health issue. And we found with a looser way of coding this that media were less likely to frame the attack as terrorism, but we did not find significant results when we used a more strict coding.
0: I thought that was really interesting that you broke it up because that, I mean, when I think of media, there is definitely that differentiation. And I'm interested in mental health and physical health And so I really liked that you pulled that apart more than just the media is talking about it in general.
2: Thank you. Yeah. And we, and we thought about this, you know, in different ways as well, when we're thinking about testing the hypothesis about media references to mental illness and the coverage Just that we, also needed to think about, you know, whether or not the perpetrator is known or not, because contrary to what a lot of people assume in most terrorist attacks, we don't actually know the individual or individuals who perpetrated it. So obviously, if we don't know who perpetrated it, it makes it much more difficult to identify. You know, we, we can't know anything yeah. about their mental condition. We don't know anything about them.
0: Yeah, that blew my mind. What, what was it like 60% of terrorist terror attacks, you don't know the perpetrator? Or is it the opposite?
2: So in the United States, oh gosh, you're putting me on the spot here. I'm sorry. It's in, the, it's in the paper and like, so I, I <laughs> yeah. know this. So if we look at this globally, only about 12% of terrorist attacks globally have been claimed by a perpetrator, and that doesn't wow. even necessarily mean that like, you know, John Smith was the perpetrator. It means that the group claimed it generally. Okay. Which is, again, so, you know, thinking, and that's a whole different sort of part of my research, looking at yeah. how groups, how and why groups lie about this and why that matters. But in the United States, oh, gosh, I really. It's
0: right okay if you say, don't want to throw sorry, something I, I out. Don't rem-
2: I don't remember off the top of my head.
0: Yeah, I know. I just put what About half,
2: half-ish. Okay.
0: I, I know it's in the paper that we're talking about, if I remember it. Right. Either that one or the other one that you referenced earlier. Yeah. Both of which we're putting on our website. So if people are curious, go reference that. <laughs> okay. So then part four, which was the kind of last hypothesis, like main hypothesis part of your papers on casualties. And so it was, you know, based off of prior research and theory, terrorist attacks with more casualties tend to receive more media coverage. Casualties, again, aren't necessary for an attack to be considered terrorism, but the more fatalities there are, the more likely members of the public will classify the attack as terrorism. As far as I'm aware, and as you stated in the paper, there are currently no, like, theoretical expectations for how casualties would impact
2: references to mental illness. Correct? You know, we struggled and just really thought about this quite a bit. Okay,
0: so then what are, or what were your hypotheses or hypothesis for the fatality aspect of attacks?
2: So we expected that as an attack has more fatalities, media should be more likely to reference terrorism because of this implicit, so these are implicit associations, again, that, you know, that anything that is terrorizing is terrorism, not saying that that's the case, but there tends to be sort of an assumption that if a lot of people are killed, then it must be terrorism. And so we expected to find that, again, so our findings there really, you know, depend on how we specify our models and whether or not we are including the model specification about how we code mental illness influences whether or not this variable is significant in explaining framing of terrorism. Interesting. And there was, again, model specification actually also matters in whether or not I mean, you were more or less likely to frame the attack as a result of mental illness. Okay. So not super robust findings here.
0: Yeah. Hmm. That's interesting because, yeah, I would definitely assume what you hypothesized in the findings.
1: Yeah. So to summarize, and please feel free to correct me if I'm wrong here, the main findings from your paper is that coverage of Muslim perpetrated attacks were more likely to be referenced or to reference terrorism, while there was no difference in references to mental illness between attacks perpetrated by white people and people of color.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's the crux of the findings. And I think really taking taking the findings of this study, along with our prior study that's published in Justice Quarterly, is the finding that, you know, Muslim perpetrated terror attacks in the United States receive dramatically more coverage. So it's not just that that is you know, the agenda setting piece that people are more aware of that because there's more news coverage of those attacks. But in that coverage, it's also more, much, much more likely that the coverage itself will label the attack or frame the attack as terrorism. So it's you know this compounding effect that media coverage of terrorism can have in potentially furthering this incorrect association between Islam and terror.
1: Yeah. Right. So you had mentioned earlier that it is possible to have this framing of terrorism and mental illness mm-hmm. within one act, right? But we, we often see sort of like this dichotomy between the two. Why, why is, does it get sort of dichotomized instead of sort of having it be inter, interrelated?
2: So I think like the greatest example of this is Dylan Roof. Okay. So Dylan Roof, there's by any definition of terrorism that any expert is going to throw out there, Dylan Roof's attack at the church in Charleston was terrorism. There was a debate in the aftermath of like, do we frame, you know, he also has diagnosed mental health issues. So there was an actual like large debate about this of you know, do we frame this as mental Ill, a result of a mental illness or terrorism? And reporters tend to kind of fall down the side of, well, now let's talk about this as mental illness. Like, no, no, but it's terrorism too. Why? I mean, this is going to just be pure speculation because, you know, we haven't really studied or I don't know how to even sort of get at the why question here. But I think more than anything, it's just that, you know, we like simpler answers and simpler explanations and, you know, particularly, it's easier to just default to that. And I would assume that there are, even though we didn't quite uncover them in this study, I assume there's some underlying biases in which frame gets labeled, at least in people's minds, as a function of the perpetrator's you know, social identity. Right.
0: Yeah. Simpler is better, quote unquote, better, but not necessarily if you're trying to find the truth,
2: or, right? Or, or, or. As criminologists, we know that the simple explanations are always the right ones, right? <laughs> and, <laughs> Sarcasm for anyone who didn't yes. tell that.
1: <laughs> but I've seen this argument that so sort of taking this reductionist approach to sort of just like mental illness can be heavily problematic, right? And you yeah. talked about this earlier that it can stigmatize mental illness. So just because someone has a diagnosis of bipolar or some type of, yeah. what do they call it? I'm blanking on all my psychology terms now, but, but that doesn't mean that they're just going to go out, like snap right. and go out and like shoot exactly. up a bunch of people, right?
2: Exactly. And this is where this is so problematic and this, you know, across the violence research that this is not, yeah, having a mental health issue is not a causal factor in perpetrating this kind of violence. There's even some evidence that being involved in a group that uses terrorism can actually lead to mental health issues. And this is you know the nuance that just amongst the public, there just isn't this understanding It is humongously problematic.
0: I mean, I think that kind of comes down, at least to me, if I was to speculate kind of what you said, and I'm glad you brought up that being involved in a terrorist group can lead to mental illness or it's, you know, the research is starting to kind of uncover that because I forgot that part. And I think that's important. But to me, it seems like, you know, if you're exposed to violence, and these extreme ideas, that that can have a big impact on your health. And I don't know if that's kind of what the research is showing, or if there is research on that yet. But I would yeah. imagine that that would be the case. Hmm.
2: And this is something that I'll, and I'll say I have, it's been, it's been a while since I've really dived deep enough into psychology research, I don't want to speak beyond what I'm confident in, because I don't want to do, say anything that's going to, further the confusion yes. and misunderstanding here yes. definitely
0: all right so our last question when it comes to your paper is you know on the, the implications so can you elaborate a little bit on the implications of the findings for from your paper for like the academic community but then also the public and then the political or policy spheres
2: yeah I mean so from you know from a research standpoint i mean i think it's really What I have really enjoyed in my research in the last four or five years is really diving more into these media effects and how this, you know, we know the things and media frame the things quite differently. And it doesn't really matter as much what we know if the vast majority of the public thinks that they, you know, watch criminal minds and therefore know that profiling is real. So really trying to think about sort of giving, I think that there's a lot of room, particularly in our field where people do have an overinflated sense of knowledge. I think there's just a lot of room to really look at media depictions of many aspects of crime and try to understand more of these disconnects between data and public perceptions. In terms of the general public, I mean, this is one of the things that I think this, you know, it stemmed out of these projects that Alice and Tony and I, Conducted an experimental study, where we're like, okay, like we have factual information. Can we get people to change their minds and put them more in line with factual information? And we cannot. At least not in that study. People were, you know, were plenty willing, it seemed, to admit that factual information is in fact accurate. But when asked, but will you change your mind about it? it was like, nah, nah, we'll hold off on that. So that's you know, I think there's a lot of right, there's a lot of this when we need to really, you know, how do we frame these issues to get the general public to really have a more holistic understanding of what the landscape is, and similarly with politicians. You know, if if, if the only thing that we and thankfully, you know, this is not the case, particularly with the new administration, where there is actually from the federal level acknowledgement and funding and effort focusing on, you know, terrorism and counterterrorism beyond just the you know the overfocus on Islamist extremism. So I think that there you know there is some hope in pushing this forward. So I won't end on a completely depressing note. <laughs> yes.
1: I must confess there was a time where I thought about joining the FBI because I watched a few episodes of Criminal Minds. I mean oh yeah, I think I think we've all
2: had that yeah, moment, right? Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> I watched Criminal Minds before I went back to grad school. And there was definitely like, ooh, that looks cool. I wonder if that's a real thing, you know. And it took about, you know, three days in a forensic psychology master's program to be like, oh, that is just media. That makes yep. sense. Yeah.
0: That's not real. Yeah. I think the most disappointing thing is how fast everything seems to happen mm-hmm. on TV when it's like, that is not even close to accurate. <laughs> uh,
2: yeah. yeah. And like the actual analogous units, offices at the FBI are not like that. Did you not have a private plane? <laughs>
1: <Yes>. <laughs> Sadly. <laughs> yeah. Right. It's just, it's not how it works. <laughs> uh, uh, wouldn't right. it be awesome though?
2: It would be.
0: Erin, is there anything else that you'd like to add about the paper that we were talking
2: about? Uh, no, I think that that really covers it. Okay.
0: All right. So then let's move then into our third and final section for this episode, which is on torture and entertainment media, but a little bit more broad than that, but that's kind of where we'll focus. So you recently authored a book with Joseph Young titled Tortured Logic, Why Some Americans Support the Use of Torture and Counterterrorism. Mm-hmm. And so we're wanting to spend the last few minutes discussing this book that's really geared, it seems, toward understanding how and why citizens might come to support the use of torture techniques in counterterrorism.
2: Yeah. So just as uplifting as my other project, yes. this is a series of projects. So Joe's my advisor, and my PhD, and the first paper that we, or first chapter, we became the chapter of a book, stemmed from a project that we were kicking around back in 2012, 2013, where an actual you know, a general and a number of interrogation professionals had actually traveled to Hollywood in 2007, trying to convince the producers of the TV show 24 and other Hollywood producers to stop showing torture work all the time, because that's not, not only is it illegal and moral, but it also is in practice ineffective. And the actual you know, real world, generals and interrogation professionals had concern about the impact that these media depictions might be having on troops in theater in Iraq and Afghanistan. So really what would, you know, started out is just really testing sort of that assumption of, you know, does seeing torture work in, on TV actually increase people's support for it? And that's where we started with this. And we found initially just in a sample of students that yeah, seeing torture work made people more supportive. Seeing torture fail did not decrease support. And seeing torture, regardless of whether it works or not, made people more likely to want to take action vis-a-vis signing a petition for Congress. And with this first study, it then led, you know, as is often the case, to more and more and more questions to the point that we wrote a whole book on it. Yeah, cool. Using a series of experiments.
0: So the first question is, more broad than this topic. And it's mainly because I'm not entirely sure what the answer is, because I don't know that much about terrorism and counterterrorism. And so really based off of like a Google search that I did, counterterrorism is defined as political or military activities designed to prevent or thwart terrorism. First off, is that an accurate definition? And then what are some examples of counterterrorism?
2: Yeah. I mean, so the terminology here also sort of shifts around, you know, over time. I think that broadly is covering counterterrorism efforts. Really, we can think about it more broadly, I think really any sort of, you know, anything that is trying to combat and prevent terrorist activity. In terms of, you know, this word as a part of the, you know, the subtitle of our book, it's really just trying to, what we wanted to really convey here more than anything is that we are talking about torture in this specific intel gathering context, trying to prevent terrorist attacks, not about you know torture that a serial killer might inflict on his or her victims, and really trying to dis- you know sort of limit the scope very clearly in the way that we're describing this.
1: Okay. So experts have concluded, as you mentioned, that torture is ineffective. Mm-hmm. However, based on your book, it seems. The same cannot be said for the American public. What percentage of Americans believe that torture is acceptable for counterterrorism?
2: And so, this is a great question, and this is something that you know, un- somewhat understandably, there weren't public opinion polls on support for torture really pre nine eleven because it's just the thing that we assumed that we didn't do because it's illegal, and we signed the UN convention against torture. and It wasn't you know part of public sentiment, or sorry, public sort of not sentiment, but sort. Of, what didn't resonate with the public. So, the public opinion polls on support for torture really started after the photos from Abu Ghraib in 2004 were, were leaked, and this became this hot button issue that members of the public were debating. One of the biggest issues across any broad public opinion polling on torture is that the, quest, the wording of the questions themselves tend to presuppose that it's effective. You know, do you support it if it would prevent something? I'm not just saying, do you support it? Mm -hmm. So in that context, it's a little, it's it's difficult to assess what percentage of Americans support torture or think it can be acceptable in counterterrorism. And as we see consistently throughout the four experiments that are in the book, is that about a quarter of people have fluid views on torture, meaning that we can shift, you know, we can, framing and how we, manipulate the different conditions can make people typically more supportive of torture. It's a lot harder, it seems, to constrain people's views, whereas about three quarters of people have their views and the framing doesn't influence them. In some ways, it's hopeful because we can really try to hopefully focus more of the efforts on that quarter or so who have fluid views on torture, but also a bit depressing, as is the theme here, in that it seems much easier to push people to be more supportive of torture than it does yeah. to pull people's support and constraint out. Yeah.
0: Out of the three quarters that are kind of stable in their viewpoints, were mm-hmm. the majority of them supportive?
2: It depended a lot on how we were framing the questions. There okay. wasn't necessarily, you know, a fully consistent view there. Okay.
0: So then based on your research, kind of going exactly mm-hmm. off of what you're talking about, what factors do influence public support for torture?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, certainly, you know, if it is, when it's stated that it will, stated or implied that it will or is likely to work, people are more supportive of it. You know, that ends justify the means piece that there is, you know, depending on how we think about in groups and out groups can matter. So if torture is taking place domestically, people are less supportive of it. When it takes place, you know, in Afghanistan, people are more supportive of it if the person being tortured is a U.S. citizen, there's you know, less support for the practice versus a foreign national. You know, there's there's more nuance, of course, in the findings from chapter to chapter, but it really, I think one of the things that was really, became really clear as we actually systematically were looking at how to push and pull support for tortures, how sort of, how small nuances can matter a lot. And then others that we expected to have, you know, to influence results didn't. And there's, you know, there's a lot more to really unpack in the understandings of support for torture and how that might apply to, you know, broad security policy, as well as respect for rule of law, you know, beyond just this specific context.
0: Yeah. Did, I'm curious,
2: did like political leaning have any impact yeah. I mean, you know, we, and we think about this, of course, you know, people who are more conservative and more likely to support mm-hmm. torture, they were also more likely to have fluid views on torture. Interesting. And, and I think that, I think that the, you know, the mechanism there is that people who are more liberal are less likely to support torture and seem to be more likely to be like, I don't support torture and there's nothing you're going to say that's going to okay. convince me otherwise. Okay.
1: Which makes sense.
2: Makes sense and was also like kind of yeah. G- good. Yeah. Right.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, one of the factors that you mentioned and one of the sort of core components of, of your book mm-hmm. is is the media. And can you talk about how torture appears in entertainment media, such as twenty four yeah. and movies and then sort of reminds me of like shows that I that I've watched like Chuck yeah. and uh-huh. Rock no not Rocky, Rambo.
2: Yeah, what absolutely. Kind of- so we th- we do- most of this discussion about torture in entertainment media focuses on things like, you know, 24, which is this show that's focused on counterterrorism and comes out a few months after 9-11 and the suspects are almost always Muslim and Jack Bauer, you know, yeah, you're not supposed to torture, but he does it and it works and it saves the day. Yay, raw torture in the way that it is depicted in that television show. Or we discuss it in the context of movies like Zero Dark Thirty. One of the things that, you know, yes, we see that torture often is used, it often works in entertainment media. One of the chapters of the book, we actually took some clips from, Good Old Criminal Minds, where is one of the, I think the first season, where Jason Gideon, Mandy Patinkin's character, conducted an interrogation of a terrorism suspect where he actually used rapport building, which is, you know, what is actually effective in the real world. And what we found is when people saw rapport building, it did not make them less supportive of torture. It actually made them more supportive of torture, <laughs> which is super depressing. Trying to correct those views is challenging. So, we,
1: is, sorry, is rapport building considered torture?
2: No, rapport building is, is how interviews should be conducted where right. you know, the okay. interviewers developing a relationship and respect and rapport trying to... You
1: know, but build that, that made people more supportive of
2: torture. Of torture,
1: yeah. Okay. I think I I just somehow was not,
2: like, We assumed assumed at first that we must have miscoded something, and we double, triple, quadruple, quintuple checked and didn't. But this also brings us to the discussion about torture more broadly. And this is a project my friend Casey Delante at Gardner-Webb University had approached me about uh, 2017 or so. He had seen me present the first chapter of the book on on 24 at a conference, and he was like, okay, so like, we see this and how it works in the counterterrorism context, but we really have no idea how common torture is in popular media inside and outside of counterterrorism. So he and I watched the top 20 grossing films each year over a 10 year period. So 200 total popular movies. Well, you and, watch them?
1: Like you sat yes. down and watched them?
2: Well, he, he admittedly did most of this. Yes. Yes, watch movies for research. It'll be fun, he (laughs) said.
1: I was about to Uh, say, if you need an R.A. Yeah,
2: Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) Sign me up, too. No, no, no. You say that. You say that. You have to think this is the most popular, highest grossing films. So there were a lot of ones that's like, well, I guess I'll watch Chipmunks' The Squeakle. That sounds great. Yeah. There were a number of ones where it was like, okay, well, I'll do this if you do that. Because like yeah. both are horrible sounding. Yeah,
1: don't underestimate my love for trash movies.
2: Same, same. <laughs> but different but here. Still, yeah. <laughs> so, so anyways, we, you know, we watched these 200 movies and most of these popular films, including films that are clearly geared towards children, include at least one torture scene. In a paper that we have out in Perspectives and Politics a year or two ago, where we really did this, you know, this content analysis and looking at not just how regularly torture is depicted, but it's that there's a lot of these sort of common themes that when torture is used for informational, you know, interrogational purposes, it's often shown to be effective. How torture is depicted is partially a function of whether it's the protagonist or the antagonist that's perpetrating it. So, it gives us a broader view about how media might be, you know, helping to shape views on torture.
0: It just blows my mind that, like, there's torture in movies geared toward kids. Tons of it, tons of it. Like, when you emailed that, emailed us that, Mm -hmm. I was like, wait, what? And so, I had to, like, think back and yeah, like, it just doesn't register, I think, when I'm watching those kinds of movies.
1: Yeah, I had that moment where you know, like, like you just hear, like, when a character in the show has, like, a realization that just like, mm-hmm. shatters their existence, and you just hear, like, the glass shattering. Yeah. Like, that was me. I was like, oh, yeah. Like, I guess, because like, I started thinking back to all these scenes that I never mm-hmm. like, considered torture. Yeah. Like, maybe, like, an older sibling, like, threatening violence on their younger sibling for information. Like,
2: yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I'll say we were intentionally very strict in our coding. So we were understating the case in that paper. We are, we were incredibly, we were, what is very, very clearly torture. But yeah, I mean, the title of the paper is, wait, there's torture in Zootopia. Because a student in a class I was teaching one summer when I was describing this, she was like, well, at least it's not, you know, God, I love Zootopia. At least it's not in that movie. And I was like, ooh, bad news for you. (laughs) And just her like shocked, saddened exclamation was like, okay, this has to be the title of the paper.
0: All right. That's all the questions that we have for you right now. Thank you so much again. Is there anything that you would like to plug?
2: Anything coming out? No, not really, because there's been a pandemic and it has not been (laughs) productive. (laughs) Yeah, but too, it's certainly a number of things that are under review right now, including actually a project with Casey Delante where we're actually showing people clips of these popular film, non-counterterrorism depictions of torture and seeing how people interpret those and how that pushes and pulls support for torture. Okay.
0: And then our last question is just where can people find you?
2: Twitter at okay. Karns, K-E-A-R-N-S, Erin E-R-I-N-M, or a Google search and you can find my website, which has my research on it as well as my contact information.
0: Awesome. All right. Well, thank you again so much. It was great having you on. Yeah, thanks so
2: much for having me. Thank you.
0: The Criminology Academy is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at The Crim Academy. If you're on Apple Podcasts, please rate, review, and subscribe. Alternatively, let us know what you think of the episode by leaving us a comment on our website, thecriminologyacademy.com. And lastly, share The Crim Academy episodes with your friends and family.